so this morning we are getting back um, after seven last week took us through the uh, first chapter, the first nine verses in Joshua. Uh, we are going to be heading back to Acts this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can um, uh, open up your Bible to page uh, eight fifty. Eight fifty-eight. Uh, if you're using the Bible down below, if you're using your own Bible, it's probably different. Uh, and then, what we're going to talk about actually in chapter four is we're going to continue to look at how the Holy Spirit spread the gospel. I mean, if the gospel is the most important message in the world, if that is true, then we really want to know how the Holy Spirit spread the gospel so that we could play that role. Because we have the same call on our lives, if we are Christians, that they did in the New Testament. And we've been given the same power through the Holy Spirit. And so today we're going to look at another specific way that they got to this place of reaching so many people for the name of Jesus. So that we may too make the same kind of impact in our lives. Now, the text that we're going uh, to follow is only six verses long, but they are a very challenging six verses, because they challenge us to let go of what we hold most dear. And, and for some of us, the price of uh, spreading the gospel is going to feel steep in this area. It's going to feel steep to be the kind of church that God has called us to be, but I believe that if we open up our hearts and our minds to the Lord's Word and Spirit, God's going to show us that it is worth us, worth it to, uh, for us to trust Him in this area so that we may be the kind of church that He has called us to be. Amen, church? I don't know what you're talking about yet. It's not. So here we go. Acts chapter 432. As we get a glimpse yet again of how the early church operated. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, for they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and was distributed to each. As any had need. And thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him. And he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So in this passage, we see an echo of what we talked about in Acts chapter 2. The earlier early believers had everything in common. They pulled it all together. Once again, this wasn't communism. They did it by choice. They pulled things together. They brought them together so that nobody was without anything. And to the point that Luke gives an example of a man who literally sold his property and gave it to the apostles to be distributed. The proceeds. And in right here, this is kind of what we're focusing on today. We're focusing on the selfless generosity of the New Testament church because of the impact it had in propelling the gospel to the ends of the earth. See, the generosity that the New, uh, New Testament Christians showed was foreign to the Greek and Roman cultures at that time. It's not that they didn't give, but you didn't give without expecting something in return to such a degree. To just give things freely away did not make sense. The people on the outside, and you can actually read this from Roman and Greek authorities who were trying to figure out why the, the Christians were doing this. 
they, they say, like, we don't get this. Nobody gets money and property and possession like this. Nobody. And it wasn't even the earliest church. Uh, in the year uh, um, 252 AD, there was this tremendous plague uh, that hit the city of Carthage. And, and, and during this plague in Carthage, the wealthy people were getting out of town. Why? Because they didn't want to get sick. And they didn't want to lose everything that they had. So everybody was leaving. They just out of fear. But in the middle of that panic, uh, that panic there was this Christian leader, a uh, secret. And, and he came together all the Christians in the center of the town. Brought them all together. The, the town that actually is recorded to have hurt and persecuted Christians. And he said this. He said, if we're going to do, in the paraphrase, what Jesus did, and what I mean by this is, though he was rich, he became poor, so that through his poverty, he could become rich. He goes, and I call all of you to fan out through this town and to give both personal and financial aid and care and comfort to everyone according to their needs. But even if it wasn't, you know, only do it for the Christians or not, don't do it just for the people who are not your enemies. It's good for everybody. He said, if we're here to follow our master, Christ, then this is what we need to do. I think it's a fascinating story. Fascinating, inconvicting story. Because I gotta tell you right now, if there was a play and somebody called me to go and minister to those people without risk, you know, thinking about the risk to myself, that's <laughs> right, I trust myself to go do it. I'm like, no, I don't get out of the He said, no, no, we cannot do that. And partly because of this, Christianity flourished in the early New Testament. And it echoes the words of Jesus. He said, let do your good works before men that they may see God's glory and praise Him. And when I read things like this, verses like that, that Jesus said, and examples like this, I'm left with this question, how do we get to this place? Because I think people are saved by radical love. Radical love, which brings in the truth of Jesus. It's what really makes this kind of impact. All the people that I've talked to in my lives, I've got to tell you, my, you know, the Holy Spirit uses my words, but what opens the door is when I give them my time and my love and my energy and they see that they are valued. It opens the door to the gospel. So if this is true, we should want to know, if we are Christians, how do we get to this place? How do we live like this as individuals and as the church? How do I do this? How do I, how am I, how do I live like this? How can I give of myself in this way? I mean, how many of us, if I would say, hey, listen, let's go out, and let's, and many of you maybe don't own something piece of property, or a piece of property, but if you did, and let's sell it because of those in need, how many of us would really even consider being willing to do it? Now, many of us would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah I don't really care about that, but you know what? I think most of us would be willing to look at ourselves. I mean, this kind of generosity, I think it's foreign to us. It's foreign to us. Now, I know it's stereotyping a lot of people, but just in my 16 years of ministry, in our American news first culture, and giving out of our surplus, this kind of radical generosity, I think it's hard to find. And yet, Jesus gives us very harsh words. 
says in First John three, or John does. Uh, John, sorry, John posts this. He's very harsh words. He says, "Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him?" And Jesus says some similar things in the Gospels, but in the end times, you know, Jesus will say to people. You never gave me food, and you never gave me drink, to the point that if you really are a follower of Christ, you will be generous to those around you. And so with these understandings, today what I want to do is I want to tell you what separates the Christians who would actually consider selling off their property, sacrificing, and others that won't. My hope is that the Lord will reveal to us here in our lives, in terms of our generosity and our wealth, we are honoring Him. Now, for those of you who are not a Christian here today, this does not apply to you. Because your faith is not in Christ. I hope it helps you get there. But I, what I do, what, if nothing else, what I hope is it helps you take a step closer in understanding why Christians give. Why do we take an offering every week? Why do we talk about giving to those around us? Because sometimes, you know, we can get, we, we look at these individuals, I'm laughing, I'm looking at my wife, Ruth, on TV, who are asking for your money left and right and for private ministry jets to, to give you a, you know, send a hundred bucks when they send you a hanky that they blessed with this knock that they prayed over and things of this, all this other stupid stuff. And you think, my man, they just want our money. Well, I'm hoping to help you understand is why Christians would give away their money to, the, to those in need. Why they would do that. So that at least, at the very, very least, you have an understanding of why it makes sense. Now, to understand how the early Christians were this generous, you have to start with a word. And it's a word that we don't normally associate with giving, but it's a word uh, that is the foundation for giving. We sang about it today. We talked about how it is enough for us. We talked about how uh, it's amazing. Do we know what word it was? Grace. We talked about grace. You see, Christians, unlike every other religion, have a religion of grace. Unlike every other religion, it's a religion of grace. Every other religion, in, in some form or another, is a religion of self-effort, of moral effort, uh, it's a religion of good works, but Christianity is a religion of grace. Grace being God's favor, God's blessings, being bestowed upon those who don't deserve it. Free gifts. Psalm 27, 1 says, Everything in the earth belongs to the Lord. And He gives those things to His creation. James 1, 17, Every good and perfect gift is from above. When a Christian understands these two truths, it changes their attitude towards their possessions, towards their money. See, we see commercials all the time. There's a lot of commercials about investing. You see them all the time. And, and, and they want you to invest your money with them. And they all say it in different ways, but there's this common thread. Hey, it's your money. You've earned it. You deserve it. Invest with us so we can make more of it for you. And they say this probably because some marketing analyst told them, hey, if you tell people it's their money, it's going to resonate with them. And that's kind of like how we all default feel about our money. It's my money. I work hard for it. 
I don't have enough of it, I need more. You see, other people with more money than we deserve, than we have, and so I deserve more as well. This is how we all feel about money to one degree or another. But a Christian, a Christian has a completely different approach to it. A Christian looks at their money and says, this is not my money. I don't look at it as mine. I don't feel that it is mine. I don't see it as mine. And they say this because of the impact of God's grace. Let me explain a little bit more. Years ago, way long time ago, I'm years ago, Tim Keller, pastor out of New York City, he preached this message where he, he, he talked about God's grace in terms of our money, and he used the fruits uh, as an example. And I thought it was such a killer illustration. Uh, I'm going mean, I mean, to use it here today. And, and I realize it's not Christmas, but just go with me, right? And probably Christmas decorations are up in the store now anyway. You guys remember Scrooge, right? Now, there's only one real Scrooge in, in my book, and, that, and that's, you know, Scrooge McDuck, right? This is the authentic, real Scrooge. Now, you guys remember what happened to Scrooge, right? The spirits took him on that, right? Three spirits. They showed him his greed. They showed him the mistakes that he made. Uh, they, uh, they showed him his ending doom. And he ended up, at the very end, seeing his open grave. Remember that? Right? You saw the people who were suffering. You know, little Timmy was a little Timmy who died. You know, because of his selfishness. And then at the very end of it, he falls into the grave. In that despair. In that wasted life, he falls into the grave. And then all of a sudden, what happens? It's Christmas morning, right? The bells go off. He wakes up in a panic. You know, he's like touching himself. He thought he was dead. But he's alive. He thought he lost all his money, but he's alive. All the people whose lives have been ruined by his selfishness, they're still there. And then, and then we watch his, his attitude towards money completely change. Why? Because he had an experience of grief. He had a second chance. It was undeserved. He was a really good It was undeserved. And yet he was given a second chance. He thought everything was gone, but it was given back to him a second chance. And as a result, the rest of the episode, he looks at his money in a completely different way than he did before. He, remember, he was like gleeful. He's like a little kid. He's like scheming to get rid of his money. He thinks about how he's going to shower people with gifts. He's, he's gathering things up and he's talking to himself. Think of how much change lies. He couldn't wait to do it. He's running down the street. What's happening? It was literally grace that changed his life. The Bible says the very same thing. The Bible says that if you have experienced God's grace, that you too will have a revelation of the view of the world. You realize that your money is not your money. It belongs to God. It's God's money. And money is a, a, a great indicator. We don't often think about this, but money is a great indicator of how you view or experience God's grace. And in a lot of ways, it reveals a ton of your relationship with God because we hold on to money more than anything else. As one pastor said, that if you show me your checkbook, I will show you your priorities. 
Money, in a lot of ways, is like the bottom line in your life. Remember, in companies, they always talk about the bottom line, and that's how much profit did you make. That is it. That's what matters. How much profit did you make? It's, it's, it's the bottom line is what tells you if you're making progress or you're not making progress. Tells you how you're really doing. And even the Bible says that money is one of the main bottom lines of your life. This is the reason that Jesus says where your treasure is, your what? Your heart. That's where your heart will be. So you can talk about how much you love God. You can tell me you can see amazing ways, your grace is enough. You can talk about how much Jesus has saved you. But the thing that is unmistakable, the thing that's down there at the bottom, that tells you really where your heart is, what you really believe is how you handle your money. And I don't care if you're 16 or 60, the truth remains. It's the bottom line. The truth, the duck, had his attitude toward money changed by the grace of a second chance. How much more should our lives and our view of money be changed by God's grace? Because God's, the grace of God is so much more than just a second chance. It's not just a second chance to be a better person or to do better. The grace of Jesus tells us that we can have a million chances and that we would never get it right. Because we all have this sin inside of us. So no matter how many times we try, we would fail time and time and time and time again. If you're hoping to ever be good enough for God, you will continue to fail. You will continue to fall short. So the grace of God says, I did what you cannot do. Jesus says, I lived the perfect life that you cannot live. I died the perfect death that you cannot die. And I put myself in your place for your penalty. And when you understand this, when you understand how hopeless you are, as you read in Ephesians 2 that you were dead, dead and dead in your sins and your trespasses, how you had no hope, when you realize how much you did not have, do you realize in Christ how much you do have? Saying this morning, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. I once was lost, and I now found it. You are beautiful, but you're not a person. You see, when you say that, when you sing that, you, you, you change how you look at your material possessions. And when you look at all of them, you say, These are small, these are little. They are nothing compared to what I have in Jesus. I can lose these things, but I can never lose what I have in Jesus. When you look at it, you realize what you have in Jesus, you say, this is all by God's grace. This is all by His grace. It is all undeserved. It is all given to me. I deserve none of this. This is all given to me. It changes everything. It takes away your possessiveness. And some of us will be like, well, I, I work hard for my money. I work hard for your money. If you work hard for your money with the gifts that God gave you, 
with the ability to think that God gave you, with the arms that God gave you, with the ability to have speech with God gave you, with the ability to reason that God gave you. And he says in his Bible to be good stewards and to work hard. So we want extra praise and benefit for just doing what God asked us to do in the first place? It all belongs to him. It's all by his grace. And people who get this, they want to give. They want to give. They enjoy giving. Do you enjoy giving? First Chronicles 29, 14, uh, the day King David and the, and the Israelites, they donated all of this stuff, their money and their stuff, to build the temple. I was like an Old Testament church for lack of a longer detail explanation. And he says, when they're dedicating, he says, but who am I? And who are my people that we should be in a position to contribute this much? Indeed, everything comes from you, O God, and we have simply given back to you what is yours. What a revolutionary way to look at our money. Man, I had nothing. God gave me all of this, and then I get to contribute and be a part of his process of blessing other people. How cool is that? You see, when you understand grace, it causes a desire to give. I tell you right now, those who do not have a desire to give, unless they've never read about giving in the New in the Bible, it is because their understanding of God's grace is not fully rooted in their hearts. See, grace it releases the change. It's like we were saying earlier, by things are gone. It changes, it breaks the things to money and possessions in this world and all the importance that you find in these things. See, it's only when your salvation is in other things than Jesus that you're changed to your possession and to your money. It's the only time your salvation is in looks, if it's in, in, in romance, if it's in your own status, or, or having the American dream, or security in your life, then you're going to hold on to money because you need to use them effortlessly for those purposes. It's your body. It tells you where your salvation is, where your hope is, where your confidence is. So the idea of giving your money away to those that are in need, if you struggle with that, if you are opposed to that, you lose your heart somewhere else. It's not in Christ. Grace. And it takes a hold of you revolutionary. It flips you. It flips that attitude. And it doesn't just change how you look at your money. It actually changes how you give. It changes how you give your money. And look at Scrooge before and after his experience with grace. Because he's like all this. Have you ever thought about it, how you give your money? Have you ever thought about how you give it? Or how you gave it before you experienced God's grace? Before God's grace, our giving is usually spontaneous and it's passive in nature. And then look at Scrooge. People had to come to him to ask for it. And that's how we all are, right? We're passive. We feel like, hey, this is my money. I've earned it. And if people want it, they are going to come to me and ask for it. And maybe I will give them my money. Maybe. I don't know if I will because I don't have enough of it. And so we're always very possessive about our money. And we always have this self-pity about our money that we don't have enough. Usually not because we don't have enough. just because we're called spenders. We have 19 subscriptions at $10 a month for 100 things, or we have to have five of everything. But we feel very possessive, and we have this self pity I don't have enough. 
Therefore, we're passive until someone comes along and puts up a child, or, you know, picks up a starving child, and we feel guilty. And that guilt drives us to, to forgive. And so what do we do? We go, oh, well, please come around. I guess I should give to this. And we look, what do I have my law? And I got 20, I have 50, and we drop it in the plate. So what? She kind of removes that. She gives herself to the defender. And that's the truth. Experience, experience, things, things are different than him. They're different from him. He, he was looking for ways to get rid of his money. Remember, he was proactive, he was intentional, he was planning, he was scheming, I'm going to grab this and this, I'm going to find A, B, and C, and I'm going to give. And anybody who's experienced the grace of Christ is going to look at what he's done for me. How God planned, think about it. But God planned to send His Son. The entire the Old Testament, Tim and I were talking about this the other day, he was leading the men's study. The entire Old Testament is a story of Christ being revealed to the people of Israel. The whole plan played out of God's riches being given to God. And so in return, so if God planned to give me all these things, and in return, I want a plan to give away as well. I'm going to give away like He commanded me to. You see, grace causes you to become an intentional giver. Just like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, look, set aside some money. Plan ahead. That's what we're saying. This is going to be But is it actually realistic to say, I'm going to take a portion of my income that God has given me and set aside to be invested in the work of the kingdom of God? If that's the case, it's legalistic to pay your mortgage. Or the plan for food. No, it, it's not legalistic. It's just good planning and obedience, and it's a good way to live. We see this all through Second Corinthians, where especially in nine, where he talks about how we should give in intention. Now, if you're passive and a spontaneous giver, you don't give by grace. You don't need to make any plans. You don't need to think ahead. You just give whenever the you know you feel moved or feel good. But if you have been saved by the grace of God and you realize this, then you would be an intentional giver. And I don't care how little you make. You're going to say, here's the amount of money that I'm going to use and that I'm going to give away. You're going to have it sitting there. Depending on where it's going to go. And here's the money I've set aside that I'm going to give to my church. Here's the money I've set aside that I'm going to give to this missionary or gospel organization. Or here's this money I'm going to set aside to give to those in need. Like a friend of mine, back in Seattle, one of my best friends growing up, he just has an aiding assistance fund. He sets a certain percentage he gives to it every month. He never touches it, except for when there's a need. So he is ready to give to that need. He's planning, he's thinking ahead. And this is why every week we teach that obedience to the Lord is giving a percentage of your income to the church. To those who are in need as well. What other organizations studying the gospel? Some churches use a ten percent as a guideline. There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, I think it's a good flag guideline. Because what I will preach is what you should really do is you should sit down and you should pray and ask the Lord what percentage of your income that you should give to Him. That's what you should do. Most times, I found out when I, I said it to myself, I won't do it. I never get around to do it for whatever reason. And so I use 10% as a guideline for when I don't get around to do it. Because what we and I, we do it every year. Every January and February, we pray for what percentage to give. Right? And if we don't, we just give 10% until we actually sit down and do it. So we make sure that we continue to give. But if you are to pray and ask the Lord, okay, what percentage am I to give? 
of what you have given me. I might get much more into the theology of this. I did a whole four week study back in 2016. It's probably still on podcast. If someone is understanding the grace of God, is constantly thinking and wondering, praying and pondering, how can I honor God with what God has to know? Do you ever ask yourself that question? Teenagers, college students, do you, cost, do you ever ask yourself, how am I honoring God with my finances? Does the question ever come up in the It should. It's a resource that God has given us to pass on. i got a buddy of mine. He's one of the most generous guys I know. And he's constantly calling me up. He goes, Lord, he goes, Jeff, you think I'm being a good steward of what God's given me? And he is. If you can say to my opinion, because he's done such a good job, but he, he wants to honor God. He wants us that it should be our goal. Our desire. And what drives it is it isn't even the grace of God enough. It's the expectation of what we're investing in. It's the expectation of what we are investing in. Like you said, you know, before the grace of God, we would give because of guilt. But after the grace of God, we give because of what He's given to us, and we give because of what God can do with it. We give because of what God can do with it. In fact, there's one passage He said, He said, it's what you sow that multiplies, it's not what you keep in your heart. I thought it was so good. See, grace causes you to become a sower of money. Now, I'll explain what I mean. I believe that it's possible. Now, I, we don't get a lot of details about what heaven is going to be like, but here's what I hope happens, what I think would be super cool. Is that one day you're walking into the gates of heaven, and some person walks up to you that you don't know, that you've never met, and says, hey, you don't know me, you've never met me, my name's so-and-so, but there's this one time you took money out and you gave it to so-and-so in this ministry, and because of that, they came to me and they brought me to Jesus. Would that not be the coolest thing ever? In that day, in that moment, would you be happy that you didn't go to Starbucks five days a week, or Dunkin' Donuts, or wherever, or that you didn't have ten subscriptions to every video service known to man, or you didn't have nine pairs of shoes, or eight tools, or whatever it is you spend your money on? Because in that moment, what's going to happen, this is going to be true, that in that moment, your money is going to be burned up, your money will be gone, but yet, at the same time, it's right in front of you. Your wealth is still there. It, it will never perish because it has been invested in the kingdom of God. As we stand there and we say, thank you for using your money to help me finish it. Once again, as Jesus said, go back to the first one and the last and the last two minutes. Someone who understands the grace of God understands what they've been invested in. And when you give because of grace and because of what you're investing in, there's chains of money that it releases you from because we're all chained to money. We're all chained to money in one way or another. Some people you sit here right now and preach about this and you can't wait for me to finish them talking about money. You're like, I can't do it. I have no money. I can't do it. When you say that I can't do it, what you're saying is, and listen, I'm very important that I've been in food stamps and in welfare and we have no money, so I speak from experience. But when you say I can't give, what you're admitting is that money has a hold of your spirit. That 
money is what controls you. That it is what you trust in, and your thought of losing more is what brings you security. But it's what makes you do. And God's grace changes that because you say, "Look, God gave me His Son. God gives me His Spirit. He's never let me stumble. I can be generous. I can trust Him." I mean, you don't give as much as so-and-so or so-and-so, but it doesn't matter. Because what you've done is then when you sat down and prayed and asked the Lord if the percentage you should give your finances and you've been faithful. If it's 2%, 3%, 10%, 15%, 20%, whatever it is, you've been faithful. You know you're being obedient to Him. It's easy for most things. And it goes the opposite. Some of you, your lifestyle is so important to you that money has a hold on you. You want to buy a bigger house. You want to buy a boat for the lake. You want to buy an extra toy. You have this certain lifestyle that you want to live. You want to go on so many vacations a year. And so you have to hold your money because you want to live a certain way. You've got to drive a certain car. But when you restructure your lives to say, you know what? I don't need that nice car. Or I don't need that big of a house. I don't need five of this, six of this. I don't need a boat. It brings the things of money in your life. And then you can find that you never needed those things in the first place. That the joy that you get from sowing into the kingdom of God matters so much more. Then you have faith. So today I pose these questions to you. Have you experienced the grace of God? And when it comes to your money, has your money experienced the grace of God's money? Or is it still your sentence? God's glory being awakened to other people because of you helping. You walk around with an expectation of looking to help you. Do you ask the Lord for those opportunities? Are you living your life in such a way that it looks different to the people around you that they take notice of it? That it looks strange to them, that they don't understand it? That you need to be Well, as least some people might be here, and, and you don't know what to think about Christ, it's still certain you don't. You're not sure what you think. You can use money as a test. If you're irritated by this sermon, if you think it's a being, you know, unbelievable, annoying, and selfish that a pastor would preach about this, because many pastors get paid by their churches to come up and talk to you about things like this. If the idea of giving a percentage of your money strikes you as ridiculous to a church or to a missions organization, there's no condemnation here. I wouldn't expect you to understand it because you have an experience God's grace. I, I don't think you need to give your money away. I think you need to find Christ. I don't want the money. You don't need to put it in the back. You need to find Christ. 
That's where it stops. The Lord doesn't want me to give your money and tell you five things. Because until you're able to say that Jesus is your Savior, the party, the attitude towards money, will not change. That's what I'm saying, but it is, you have to get it, because that was the exact opposite of everything that Jesus does. You want to see the religion following Christ. But it's going to be by good deeds. It's going to be by sugar in the plate. But it's going to be by you putting your faith and trust in Him as your Lord and Savior. You realizing that he gave up all of his gifts to become poor so that you could find what you're talking about. 